Hey everyone, welcome to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. If this is your first time listening, I am your host and Dumb Guy Christian Surge. And always with us is our co-host, Smart Guy, Johnny Morrison. That's right. For the next 23 minutes or so, we're going to have a conversation about current events, culture, politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. You know, Johnny, it's good to be back. It's good to be here. It's good to be chatting again. But I was listening to the last episodes and I've got to admit, at First, in these episodes, I disagreed with you quite often. Uh-oh. And you know what? For the last like 12 episodes, we just don't disagree very much. Huh. We're becoming more and more alike. Is that what's happening? Or we're or or I'm right and you're becoming like me? <laughs> I mean, that's possible. I don't think that I'm disagreeing enough and I think the show might be boring. Mm. Well, you need to choose some more contentious articles. Okay. Well, I think I've done tonight. Well, actually, I do have a bone to pick with you. Uh-oh. Um, my son said, Johnny hasn't watched You're in Town, my show, yet. I haven't yet watched it. That's true. And he he really loves you guys in Salt Lake City. And the fact that right now there's two guys talking, one from California, one from Utah, and we can agree on most things. He's like, I don't agree with that, Dad. That's He's fair. He shouldn't, he shouldn't agree with that. You got to watch the show. That's fair. I do agree with the bone that you picked, though. So I don't know that that, <laughs> <laughs> that works in terms of disagreement. I agree. I should watch it. I want to watch it. I like watching his stuff. Uh, thanks for doing that. Maybe we will disagree today. I know last week we talked a lot about violence and guns, but come on, the Devin Chauvin trial. We got to at least say something. Yeah. Yeah. So if you're, you're listening to this episode released on Monday, the week prior, we got the guilty verdict in the Derek Chauvin case. Um you know, and it's such an interesting moment, I think, like just in American culture and in the conversation around race and justice in the United States. Um, Keith Ellison, who is the attorney general, uh, I think in Minnesota said, I think it was really, really well said that this is a moment of accountability, but it's not a moment of justice. And I think that's really true of this moment. Like it is powerful that a police officer was held accountable for their actions but that's not justice. Justice would be that it didn't happen in the first place. Justice would be an, a restoration of something. And it is a moment of like hope in that someone was held accountable where so few are held accountable. But it also kind of speaks to the massive gulf. Like if this is the first person that we're seeing being held accountable in so long, how much work took place in order to hold this person accountable, it it just reveals how, how broken the thing is, how disparate and wide the gap is between justice and what the system is that we live in now. And so it's like a moment to celebrate, but it feels also like it's a real heavy moment in so many ways also. It just blows my mind that they draw a connection between, say, the protesters and the KKK or Black Lives Matter yeah. and the KKK. I, I don't understand one group, the KKK, they lynch people. They kill people because of their color and believe in a master race mm-hmm. Black Lives Matter. They want to uh, create a system without racism. They want to fight mm. for uh, black lives that they matter. And some people will look at that and say, oh, if if Black Lives Matter, somehow that takes my rights away. And mm-hmm. you, know, you, you make a really good point on this uh, 
the idea that it is just an imbalanced situation, that the amount of work, how long has it been? Eight months? A year? Mm, mm, yeah, yeah, almost a year, right? Since George Floyd was killed, and they just are now coming to the trial. It's just, it's disheartening. It is disheartening, because I think without a video in those nine minutes of watching George Floyd die, like without that video, I think what we would have received from like police departments in Minneapolis is uh, that someone died because of a medical related police mm-hmm. incident. Like that would have been the story that was told. And so there's, we still don't see internal accountability systems. We don't have any mechanisms that are like reforming police systems. We're not seeing a demilitarization of police. We see people getting body cams, which is maybe one thing, but it's such a, like, there's no, there's no reform that's actually happening. And yet it led to all of that work just to get to this one moment of one person being held accountable. But the other person would say, no, that's the media just trying to cause hate. Yeah. Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Like Makahia Bryant, 15-year-old that was shot by Ohio mm-hmm. policemen in Columbus. Someone said, if it wasn't necessary to shoot the white men who were attacking cops at the Capitol, it's not necessary to empty clips into a teenager. I don't know if we would have even heard anything about it mm-hmm. if it was like the George, like if we would have heard anything about George Floyd, really, mm-hmm. if it wasn't filmed. Just like the guy who was pulled over uh, and drove two miles to a gas station to be pulled over and then was pepper sprayed and demoralized and told him he was going to ride the lightning and he was a National Guardsman Mm -hmm. or in the military. Only because was it filmed, it got press. Same thing that happened behind my house when the guy got killed. There was no video and it wasn't reported. Yep. It's bullshit. Yeah. Totally. How do you compare the KKK and Black Lives Matter? How do you say that the media is just trying to promote hate? And I understand some are, but how do you say that? How, where do you find that that's actually true? Yeah. There's not been a case in recent history that I think is easy to say it that way. But like the George Floyd case was so demonstratively in just that to say that the media is spinning it in a way to promote hate or a push an agenda is, is kind of a wild statement. Cause even, even, even people I know who tend, that's a nice way to say this. Like people I know who don't see systemic racism as the same kind of problem that I do still looked at the George, Flo- the George Floyd moment and said that was wrong. Like, right. So like, even more mm. people more on that side of the spectrum could look at this moment specifically and say it was wrong. So to hear what you're saying feels like, yeah, I don't even know what you're looking at at that point or what you're, what silo you're living in. It was interesting. I have uh, a, some new, we made some new friends. One is from Poland and one is from Amsterdam. They're white, uh, beautiful people. And one's a cello player. One's a mm. headhunter for in and out. And huh. they have commented about, the Dev, uh, the Devin Chauvin trial and said, well, hey, is he innocent? Like we've been seeing all these people who have doubts and they're like, explain the US court systems to us because we don't understand. And at first I was mm. upset. I'm like, do you think that he was you know, not guilty? And there was kind of this exchange and um, she was like, no, I, I actually don't understand why he's not just plain 
guilty. There's the video and then the, you know, there's the proof. And we had to explain to them, hey, you are innocent until proven guilty. And you get a chance with a, quote, jury of your peers to plead your case. And that's what mm-hmm. they're doing. She's like, well, they're lying, aren't they? Or are they not lying? Like, I don't know. It sounds so convincing. <laughs> yeah. So what if, what if our system hmm. plays a part in the way America middle class Americans mm. think about truth and justice and accountability? And maybe that's has something to do mm-hmm. with it. I I mean it's I've been thinking it was a lot. It's interesting <clears throat> what you just said about how your friends perceived the way the court hearings were going. Because I think there's something really interesting about it, even in America, the way this trial has gone. Because the prosecutors of Derek Chauvin, for the most part, have argued that Chauvin did something uniquely bad. So the prosecution has argued that he was like excessive in his use of force. And they brought in other police officers to argue that as well. What the defense has done has argued that Chauvin used police force exactly as it was intended. And then um, George Floyd had a medical condition and um, because of his drug use and that mixed with the appropriate level of police force is what led to his death. Hmm. And I think that's a fascinating, in a morbid kind of way, I'm not trying to downplay how terrible this moment is, but it's a fascinating argument because in some ways, I actually agree with the defense. I think George Floyd did do what he was trained to do, and that's the problem. You but mean the pro- Devin Chauvin? Yeah, Devin yeah, Chauvin, Chauvin, did Chauvin yeah, Derek Chauvin did what he was supposed to do, and that was the problem, is that you are supposed to, as a police officer, use that kind of force to restrain someone that you have been trained to stereotype as a violent figure. And it is exactly no. police training that led to the, um, George Floyd's death. It's not... Yeah. An, it's not Derek Chauvin being a uniquely bad person. No, maybe that's true. I, I don't think that's even relevant. What is relevant is that he used police. So it's, I just say I that because it's an interesting moment where um, the question that you just asked is like, how do the systems play into this? And it's it's a, mm-hmm. like exactly right. Like, what's wrong in this moment? Did Chauvin do what he was supposed to do or did Chauvin do something that was uh, above and beyond what he was supposed to do that led to George Floyd's death? This is going to sound really trite, but in one of my favorite movies um, with Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman called Crimson Tide, in the military, they have a CO or a CXO or uh, XO, that's what it's called, that mirrors the captain's orders. Hmm. And that when he is getting ready to fire a nuclear weapon, Denzel Washington had to repeat that order and he didn't and he didn't agree and so he didn't. So there was this kind of mutiny that happened on board. And my question, a lot of people have been asking this. And yes, I I, I agree with you when it comes with, I don't want to agree with you because we've been agreeing too much, but I agree with you. Devin, Derek Chauvin did exactly what his training mm-hmm. taught him. But that means that the course of the system is broken then. But I feel like that there were several cops around and we are human beings. Where is the policy? Where is the person? Where is Mm. his friend saying, that's too much. You're going to kill him. That's too much. You're going to kill him. Now I've never put a chokehold on someone. I've, uh, I have been scared for my life. I have been confronted by attackers, 
I have held someone down who was trying to hurt me, not kill me, I don't think. And yeah, it's scary. Their adrenaline is there and you don't know what to do. I'm not a 25-year veteran or whatever he is as far as handling those situations. I don't know. The point is George Floyd didn't deserve to die yep. if he had methamphetamines in his system. If that's true, then everybody, a lot of people deserve to die. Or A friend of mine uh, was texting me about this kind of situation, racism, and does racism exist? And it got into a really heated discussion. And I said, well, hey, do your, his, his point about the uh, Micaiah Bryant was she deserved to die because she was attacking somebody with a knife. Mm. And she was doing something against the law. I said, oh, so does that mean that if you, and he said, her parents should have taught her better. I was like, well, what, you mean her foster parents in the white neighborhood? Did, does that mean that if your child does something wrong, that the police should show up and shoot your daughter or your son? And of course, he was super offended by that. Totally. And I don't know what to tell people who believe yeah. that people should die for that. I believe if you're not on the side of empathy, you're on the wrong side. <laughs> yeah, I just, they, people don't deserve to die for those things. And, and if, did you know that the Romans back in the day when people were political against them or they did wrong things, they hung them on the cross and they lined the streets into the cities mm -hmm. with people dying. Mm -hmm. They also did that to Jesus, right? Mm -hmm. So they were killing people because of their political beliefs, because of their color, because of all those things. If you're not on the side of empathy, you're on the wrong side. Mm -hmm. Did I represent it correctly? Is that what they did? Or am I quoting history <clears throat> yeah, wrong? Yeah, I know. I mean, Rome Rome did do that. Rome Rome did use their justice system to make an example of people. That's a totally that's totally true, which is exactly what we do. Well, we kind of talked a little bit about my article today, so I'm just going to mention it. It's a really interesting article uh, by Dr. Remy Adekoya. He's a Polish-Nigerian writer and a political scientist, and he writes about uh, anti-racism being a couple of different packages, like. Right now, the middle class, we are taking the words and the narrative and we are trying to change those. And we believe that if we change the words of the narrative or what we're saying, mm. that it will change history and it will change people's outcome and uh, people's view. And he's saying, yes, but in Britain, where I'm from, there's more than that. 98% of the people are white, 3% are black, and there is a money disparity we have you know white people have more money sorry he is not white white people have more money black people don't and so there is an actual material mm -hmm. possession that has to be considered in changing the outcome of what racism is yeah uh, one of the th really kind of highlights of this is he said that a median white british household well stands at 314 thousand pounds compared to the black African family at 34,000 pounds, which is just 10% of that. And then it goes into this really cool moment where it's like, hey, when racism is spoken of these days, what it's really meant, even in America, is white racism. And a lot of us have pointed out that it, that isn't to say that white people can't be the target of racism, right? White bashing is certainly kind of a thing these days. It's kind of safe, because we all, as white people, can just like talk about it and say, yo, you're racist and you're racist and not really feel it because we haven't felt what racism is, right? So we kind of do that under the guise of, oh, we're speaking truth. But at the end of the article, I think 
what I glean from it and the question that I have is, can you be racist against white people in this global economy, in this global where the majority of the people on the planet, I think, are white? I'm going to have to check my The majority of people in the, in the world? In the world? They are, are white? I think it's like 15% is white. Oh, is white. Oh, wow. Yeah. So can you be racist back to us? No. Why? Because, so, I, 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 this is a great article. I, it's, a, it's a really good article. I really highly recommend reading it. But I do think that it, I could be misunderstanding what he was saying, but he's, ta- he's making the argument that racism is more than simply words, narratives, ideologies. He even, rec- he even references Marx to talk about that material things shape ideologies, which I, I agree with. Um, those are all true things. But if that is true, then as we, we look at, like racism back towards white people, then we'd also have to say that it's first and foremost a material reality. And he, he mentions in the article that six out of the 10 wealthiest countries in the world are all white countries. That's it. That's the statistic. I was yes. Yeah. They're the wealthiest countries. Okay. And then the other the four wealthiest. are like high on the list also. So I say all of that because racism is not about identifying words Act like mean words, mean intentions, mean biases that people hold. Racism, first and foremost, is about structures of systemic marginalization and oppression that dehumanize for the sake of material possession. And mm. if white people are in are at the, the pinnacle of power in all those places, we literally cannot be the product of racism because we cannot be the product, the end of of systems that marginalize us for the sake of material possession like we it just it literally can't happen Uh, we're uh, participants in a system of racism in that we are benefiting from that system of racism which is a a form of racism in and of itself that we are superior and dominant as like a white supremacist narrative but no you can't be racist in the united states or in the world globally against white peoples you mean if i go to a black restaurant in long beach delicious one and they don't serve me because i'm white that's not racism toward me? Um, that's racism in a very, very specific understanding of racism. It's like intentions. But that's just, it's like if we're, if we're having a conversation about racism, that's like a one percentage of the pie of the definition of racism. But doesn't that make it racism? I know. I don't 1%? know that I'm going to give it that. I don't know that I'm going to give it that because like your whole life is not marginalized because of the color of your skin or because of the class that you hold in a system around you. One restaurant doesn't constitute an entire bodied existence because you can leave that restaurant and go to a restaurant next door where they won't do that. And even in that restaurant, I want to be honest with you, even in that restaurant, they refuse to serve you. I guarantee that in a cultural sense, you have more power than those restaurant owners as a white male. And so the consequences of not serving you could far be, could far outweigh the consequences that you face for not being served. And so even in that situation, when they were mean to you, the system favors you. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, so, so I could leave the restaurant, go to Huntington beach and find the white rallies leader who uh, protested and held a white rights rally in Huntington beach this last Sunday, passed out KKK literature. I could go to him and cause trouble for that black owner restaurant totally or you could just call a lawyer you know you the access and the privilege and the power that you have in this society so outweighs that one that if it's a if it's a black owned restaurant black staffed in a in a in huntington beach the power i think is still so far on your side that that what you had was a mean interaction not uh not a racist experience so if white people we only make up 15 percent of this country or of this world 
you're telling me they cannot be racist specifically because they have, we have more money, more yeah. things. We have, yeah, because we have more power. Mm. Okay. And, 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 and racism is not simply, and, and even in the most small, it's not really being cruel to someone as like me to you is only a part of the lar- of the much, much larger conversation about what racism is, which is about structure, systems of disenfranchisement and of, and of empowering someone else. And so if those, I mean, if those structures radically changed, we could be having a different conversation. Hmm. Man, this is a subject I just feel like I beat and beat and beat. And I'm, I'm, I'm tired of it. I don't want there to be racism. And I don't want my friends whom I love and trust to think that there's not racism and think that they're, that nothing, like a friend of mine, his comment was, I have never gotten any, any upper hand because of my color. Yeah. And he's literally in California living in a million dollar home uh, with a family that has been here since the 50s. You know, mm-hmm. you're just like, are, are you sure you don't want to check yourself, bro? Are you sure you don't want to check what whatever it totally. says? You know, I guess last words on this article, I think that uh, words are powerful, unlike what Dr. Remy talks about. I think that if we change the narrative, we start changing our thoughts and our thoughts then start changing our actions. And I think that is powerful. I think we should change our story, change the narrative. And I think that is powerful. And then Mm. we should probably change our actions too. Yeah, I think that's true. I think that's true. I think that's a good point that you just made about the narrative. Like, that's the thing this article I think misses... And, it, and, it, and it's even funny, like Remy, Dr. Remy mentions Marx and how material, Marx, Karl Marx understood that the material conditions of a person's life will shape the ideologies they hold. So for Marx, he believed that all of our ideologies come out of some kind of like bad experience we have in the material world, like jobs are taken away, that shapes our political ideology. But Marx goes on to say, and then political ideology reshapes how we understand the material. And so mm-hmm. if like, which is what getting at what you're saying, the narrative stories that we tell shape who we blame for uh, traumas that we've experienced, difficulties we've experienced, regardless of whether they're true or not. So in the United States, you know, you think about Trump coming down the escalator when he was uh, running for president and he said that Mexico was bringing in drugs, rapists, murderers. That comes from an ideology of a pre- that that flows out of a perceived material trauma. It's not real, but it's a perceived material trauma that creates a story, which then continues to shape actual material policy. So, I, I'm just using more words to say exactly what you already said. <laughs> and you say them so damn well. <laughs> well, oh, that's a good discussion. Uh, we have a few minutes left, and I wanted to talk about your article and I think it's yeah. really important to, it's it's been important to me for most of my life yeah so I, I mean I don't think we have to take a long time on this one um, this is an article from Vox Media um, and they so recently uh, B- Biden announced new climate change commitments we rejoined the Paris Climate Accord and then he's announced some new bold uh, climate change policies this article has just like five specifically things that are happening in it but what I want to ask you, Christian, is our resident climate change expert on the show, <laughs> our climate change correspondent, so to say. Uh, what do you think about the new commitments that are being made by the Biden administration? Are they enough? Um, are they doable? Like, just what, as a person who's been paying attention to this for a long time, what do you think about this moment? I think that uh, Biden's doing a great thing. I think he's putting 
focus on the right thing. Uh, by 2050 or 2030, I was trying to get to the details, so I don't know many of the details, so I can't really comment as a correspondent. Yeah. I was trying to find the details, like what exactly is it that There's we're going to do? There's not a lot of details. It's like commitments. The big ones are um, cutting greenhouse gas emissions by 50 to 52% relative to our 2005 levels in less than a decade uh, mm -hmm. and being carbon neutral by 2050. And in the meantime, he wants to uh, move our power grid to an entirely carbon-free power grid by 2035. Those are some of the big ones that came out of it. Well, I do know that U.S. represents about 15% of the global emissions in the world, and it's a significant amount. It's not the majority amount, where I think China uh, sits like 35%. Yeah, of, I think that's true now. Um, that we would do well to reduce our carbon emissions, and it's going to take a reprogram of our minds. It's going to take us thinking about putting recycle bins. It's going to take us thinking about it's not just straws. It is straws, too. It's thinking about reusable plastics. Like, what can I reuse? How can I reuse this? It is about turning our lights off. It is about buying an electric car. It is about uh, supporting uh, solar panels. I live in a state that supports solar panels, and there's probably one out of 100 people that have solar panels. It's just like, mm. you know, solar freaking roads. Uh, I know that California wants to be uh, actually gas independent, by 2050, I think so. They'll mm. you'll probably see in 2050 they're saying that everyone will have to drive a electric car. Like no gasoline mm. cars will be able to be sold in California after 2050. I think that's a bold move. I think we should do it, and we are not going to. I don't believe that the world is going to change anything until there are massive amounts of people dying. It's going to take mm. a pandemic of great magnitude for the oil companies to relent control. It's going to take uh, our children dying, our children's children dying for anything to be done or anyone to take this seriously. I've had so mm. many conversations, put people in VR headsets, risked my life. Nobody gives a f It's dramatic, it's exaggerated. I think some people do, but a lot of people just don't. Yeah. They'll it's use Ziploc bag. Go ahead. No, it's, it's, I think you're right. Like it, it, climate change is such a tricky one because it's like, it's so existential and, and, and for most of us, it's very difficult to see. So even if you believe in climate change, even if you really care, like at like an emotional level about climate change, it's so difficult to like get your head around the consequences of it. So it all, mm -hmm. it just keeps getting handed off to other generations and people like you care, people like my wife care a lot about climate change, about waste but it's what you just named like one in every hundred households around you has solar panels. Like that's not enough. Like there has to be some kind of like large scale state and federal driven policy in order to just like put solar panels in everybody's home. Yeah. Like we're just going to do it. We're going to pay for it to happen. We're going to put solar panels in everybody's home. How many times have you all gone to the grocery store and just bought a pallet of bottled water mm. without even thinking, man, this is so much damn plastic. Do you know mm -hmm. where this is going to go? And it's not just about plastic bottles, but just think about that for a second. Or when you use a Ziploc bag, it's not recyclable. How many Ziploc bags do you use? Can't you go buy something that maybe is plastic, but you use about a thousand times before it breaks? I don't know, man. It, it, uh, it's frustrating. And I've lost my fervor and my vigor for being an activist in that area. I still do everything that I can do to use less 
make less waste, recycle more, use things to their fullest potential, and you know, promote energy into recycling everything. Yeah, I mean, I think like it's always how it's it's interesting to talk to you about it. Like, I think that makes a lot of sense. I it's like hard for me to know what to do with the Biden administration's commitments on mm. climate change because like they sound better, but at the end of the day, it sounds like like the, cause the, the Paris climate accord, like the whole concept of, if I remember correctly, correct me if I'm wrong, was they were trying to keep the global warming below 2.5 degrees Celsius. Mm-hmm. And it also, everything else I was reading about it is like that may like that may happen, but it like, most likely even with these kinds of commitments, we could still be at 2.5 or above 2.5. And that's still a lot more than we want it to be warming anyways. So it's hard. I think it's hard to get my mind around like, what is it, what is necessary at a federal level, at a global level to actually combat um, climate change emissions. And I always feel so overwhelmed at like a personal level. Like is riding my bike to work every day, actually changing anything. (laughs) It does. It does. It does. It really does, because if a thousand people ride their bike every work to, uh, today, like right now, California, we're below 2005 levels, which were the highest levels in the last 20 years. And mm. we're like 21% below that because of 2020, because people were staying home, people were riding bikes, yeah. people were getting out, the sky was clearer. And now as we get going, we're expecting to just go way above 2021 or 2020 levels and even 2005 levels, you know. It it goes back to the same thing I say sometimes, that as people, as humans, we can barely see past the end of our noses. We can't even treat people who have a different skin color the same. We haven't been able to do that for millions of years. Even Homo sapiens killed other species that didn't look like them, right? We don't think that it's going to, like, we think that George... People think that George Floyd should have died or gotten killed or murdered because he was on methamphetamines. We can't see that past the end of our noses, but if that happens to our brother or our daughter or our sister, then we have we change our tune. Yeah. If fire burns our home and we lose our daughter because she burned to death in the house because of climate change, we're going to change our tune. Mm. It's like, I wish that we as a human race could learn and see past the end of our noses. And I hope mm. that we do one day. Yeah, I mean, Christian, I hope that I hope that too. We'll try to keep doing what I know how to do on climate change, but I'm, I appreciate what you said, that it matters, that what we do is on the small level speaks back to like actual change. And then when it comes to like the larger conversations in this, like the narratives that we, that we tell matter, but it's also kind of like the same thing on climate change. Like there are real material realities to both mm-hmm. racism, to climate change, to injustice, to mm-hmm. the things that we're seeing happen all around us. And so there has to be more than talk on all of these important subjects. Amen. Well, that ends our episode, everyone. Remember, the things you do matter. Ride your bike to work, use less <laughs> plastic, don't be a racist, and for crying out loud, look at other people with love and empathy. And thanks for listening to the show. I don't know if that matters, but it matters to us. So thank you. See you next time. Thanks. If I'll stay, if I'll stay.
listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.